0: Amen. So once again, we're looking at this subject of my gospel, that unique phrase that uh, Paul uses three times in his writings. And we've taken a look at that phrase. It was prompted by something I read months ago that stated that Christianity is largely a revelation received by the Apostle Paul. And Once we reconcile ourselves to that, there there are people that I make that statement to, and immediately they say, well, what about the Gospel of John? And I'm like, yeah, John's in the canon, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Uh, What about the book of James? And I'm like, yep, yep, James is there too. James has contributed, it's like the confluence of many streams. But the overwhelming evidence is that, and I speak as a man, I don't speak knowing the mind of God. The overwhelming evidence is that it seems as though God chose Saul of Tarsus, the man that we know as the Apostle Paul, to be a chosen vessel. And the book of Acts seems to promote the Apostle Paul. He's not on every in every chapter in the book of Acts but very early on in the book of Acts Acts chapter 7 it is as though the book of Acts is written to introduce this man Acts chapter 7 the stoning of Stephen I wrote down a few weeks ago interesting to me that here Acts chapter 7 you've heard me say this before that All the major themes of Paul's writing can be traced back to the sermon as it is recounted for us of Stephen just before he's martyred in Acts chapter 7. A very long chapter. I think it's better than 59 or 60 verses. In retrospect, you know, when you think about that, of course, Stephen's last words, his sermon, are in quotation in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. But when you think about that, how is it possible? Here's a text that's 2,000 years old. Stephen, obviously, if you're getting stoned, I don't think you have a prepared manuscript in front of you for a sermon. And it's a very well-organized sermon. If <laughs> you kind of catch my drift here. This is Luke's version of Stephen's sermon. And it takes a while for us to wrap our heads around that idea or that thought in this sermon for which Stephen has no notes and no one is there. I I, I presume that no one is there in shorthand writing down his exact wording. There are no recording devices. Do, Do you understand what I'm saying here? It is a complete review of Israel's history. And so, What we have in the book of Acts, particularly in the sermons, Luke is bleeding through. He's the editor. I'm doing some editing now. The owner is writing up sections for a new website. He had 35 years' experience as a project manager at Boeing. He's used to writing instruction manuals. So now when I get his, and his, he just sits there and types like this and the words just come out. And so he's used the word substantive and I'm saying to myself, I think he meant substantial, but then again, what is the difference between substantive and substantial? So I'll have to Google that. When I edit what he's written, I think it's better. Is it still him writing? The answer would be yes. This is why in a book you have an author, but you also have an editor, and sometimes the editor is acknowledged, sometimes the editor isn't acknowledged, because it's just implicit in the writing process. So what we have is Stephen's sermon edited, how much did Luke say, it's Luke's, book, right? The Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, written by St. Luke, the second volume in a two-volume treatise. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now he writes the second volume, the book of Acts. So the author is recounting, we believe, events that actually took place. And we also believe that in, let's say, for instance, Stephen's sermons in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, he is giving us a semblance, the core. In other words, there is nothing untruthful, but it may be edited in a way to make the point that Luke wants to make. So when, when you read through the seventh chapter of the, the book of Acts, I don't know, on my last day, dying day, if I was getting ready to be stoned, I'm not sure that I'd be well that well organized in my presentation. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but we have to understand the purpose for which the book of Acts was written. The purpose for which the book of Acts was written was to track the transition of the church early Its focus was on, it starts in Jerusalem, the main character is the Apostle Peter, but as we've seen, when we get to the middle of the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, Peter shuffles off, shuffle up off, stage right, we don't hear from him again. There's not to be found in the balance of the book of Acts, 13 more chapters, one word Uh, Hardly a mention, if, if at all, of the Apostle Peter. When we get to the last chapter of the book of Acts, we're in a different city now. You see how understanding the context makes the understanding of the purpose of the book stand out more clearly. We're now in Rome, which is... Uh, the big apple of, of Western civilization of its day. And the focus is on the man that we know as Paul. And Paul's last words in the book of Acts is, the Jews won't listen. He's talking to Jews. He himself is a Jew. The Jews won't listen, but the Gentiles will. A famine, Amos says, in those days, in these last days, a famine for the hearing of the word of God. Uh, You Jews won't listen, and now the gospel is gone. We're going to turn to the Gentiles. And he doesn't say, at least they'll have the opportunity to listen. He simply makes a statement at the end of the book of Acts, the Gentiles will hear. They will listen. So in many ways, particularly in pentecostalism traditional pentecostalism we've missed the point of the book of acts we think acts 2 that's where the holy the day of pentecost the holy spirit was poured out we think acts chapter 8 acts chapter 10 acts chapter 19 that this is the focus of our attention that the ruling interpretive text in the book of acts is acts 238 and We miss the point of the book of Acts. All those things we can discuss and subscribe to and say, yes, this is what, as a narrative, this is what took place. But the flow, the point, the purpose of the book of Acts is to show that in the end, the circumcision party, the mother church, and this is further beyond the book of Acts, God puts an exclamation point on this when in 70 AD Titus and his Roman armies lay siege to Jerusalem and the church is scattered. There is a diaspora and Jerusalem is destroyed and uh, Christians that were in Jerusalem were scattered all abroad or killed or died in, in that confrontation. And it, it is as though the words of Amos the prophet are coming true. The bodies have piled up in the streets, so many bodies, and God says, shut up, I don't want to hear about it. I'm done with you. I, I'm not, I'm not going to pass by you in the sense of show up at your house with a blessing for you anymore. I'm done. So... That in and of itself tells us where does the focus of the attention move of the church Then it necessarily moves further west. Paul has a dream, as somebody in Macedonia is saying, come over here and help us. So why does Paul move towards the west? Just think of what Western civilization would have been if Paul, we've talked about this before, if Paul didn't listen to the Holy Spirit and Paul had decided instead of turning left, you know, a map of Turkey now, instead of turning left, instead of turning towards Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Corinth, and finally to Rome, he had turned right. Then that might be we would all be speaking Chinese because uh, the gospel would have been delivered to us through Chinese missionaries. Think about it. It boggles the mind. You cannot divorce the progress of Western civilization from the spread of Christianity, again, largely through the effort, the writings, and the ministry of the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. So, that's a long introduction to kind of sum up where we've been at. Why I believe then this is what it compels us if you read the Bible or claim to read the Bible and you are ignorant of the gospel that Paul preached, you're missing the point. You're missing the point entirely. No matter how much scripture you may, and there are are many churches who can, who they have their own uh, path that they have, uh, it's a well-trodden path that they have marked out some founder has gone through the forest first with an ax and marked on the tree, this is the way you should go. Somebody follows, the path widens, right? Bell Fountain Road is actually a horse and buggy trail out to the ferry on the Missouri River. Uh, so the path gets wider. Some of the trees are cut down. And pretty soon people say, well, this is the only way that you can get from point A to point B. Or, uh, this is the way that my parents went, this is the way my grandparents went. We we would hear this in Pentecostalism a lot, you know. Don't remove the ancient landmarks. And the ancient landmarks went back to about 1915. (laughs) You see, it's relatively modern, right? They weren't ancient landmarks in that sense. So everybody has their kind of, You've used, heard me use the analogy like stones placed in the stream, and you hop from one stone to the other. And so, this is our favorite path through the scripture. Here is how we arrive at the truth that we preach Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. And that is the entirety of the book of Acts. If you don't preach that message, you're not preaching the truth. And, and I have to say, that the book of Acts, if you understand the purpose for which it, it was written, you get to the end of the book of Acts, you naturally, here it is, now Paul is in Rome, and he's told the Jews, you won't listen, but the Gentiles will, and what is the next book? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, what's the next book? Romans. So why wouldn't you keep reading? Keep reading. So the criticism then comes back. We have to be careful here as well. You know, you evangelicals, you like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but then you skip right over the book of Acts and jump into the book of Romans. I I think it's it's a fair criticism. And I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can be both and. In other words, I believe all 66 books of the Bible are inspired. Myself, I have a a qualified version of inerrancy that works for me. And I have a high view of Christ. I have a high view of Scripture. And so show me then where I am deficient in my understanding of the book of Acts and I'll show you where you may be deficient in your understanding of the book of Romans. Clearly, there is a, and and I use this word cautiously, there is a journey of progressive transition from the focus of the early church in Jerusalem as opposed to the later gospel message that Paul the Apostle preaches. So, that, that's our premise. That's where we begin with. Last week, we took a look at a few of these scriptures because we're stuck in Romans chapter 2. So we've seen that Paul is out to uh, destabilize a Jewish confidence. Uh, what was Jewish confidence? Well, we're descendants of Abraham. What was a Jewish confidence? God has delivered us to us the law. Uh, what was the basis of Jewish confidence? Uh, our fathers had the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh, what was the basis of Jewish confidence? We had delivered to us were the oracles of God, the very voice of God, the very words of God, not just on tablets of stone. But this was the idea of God's people encamped around the tabernacle was that the living presence of God constituted the daily life of that community. I mean, that's pretty exclusive. You need a word from God? Well, let's walk down to the tabernacle. We'll bring a sacrifice. We'll see what God has to say. So Paul is poking holes in this argument and The reason he's poking holes in this argument is because this is what happened to him. So he is trying to show that everyone will fall under God's judgment. We saw that in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God from heaven is revealed against all those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The Jews, they don't have a special place of protection from God's judgment. And one of the things that Paul says to bring this out is that that in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, he talks about the subject of works. Look at it. He will render, verse 6 of chapter 2, he will render to each one according to his works. So we've seen that that's kind of a scary proposition because we know that Paul's gospel, which really is the most highly refined presentation of Paul's gospel, is in the book of Ephesians. For by grace through faith you are saved. You don't generate it. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet here in his conversation, he hasn't named who he's talking to in verse 6. He does this in verse 17 as we've seen. If you call yourself a Jew, he actually calls them out. So what I think Paul is proposing to do, if you do not subscribe to the gospel of grace, that I'm saved by grace through faith, that it's God's gift, not only is the grace a gift, but the ability to trust, to believe is also a gift from God. And that this is done so so no one will boast, it is apart from works. He goes on later to say in Ephesians that we are created unto good works. created unto, So there's, there's a distinction that needs uh, to be made there. Why does Paul then, if that's Paul's gospel, why does Paul say, look at it again in verse 6 of chapter 2, he will render to each one according to his works. I think that what Paul is saying is that if if you don't find safety and security in the gospel of grace, this is the only other option available if you're not going to subscribe to the glory of, as Paul says in in the first chapter of Colossians, him we proclaim, him we preach. If you're not going to bow the knee, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, if you're not going to do that, then this is the other path that you have to get on. You have to go the path of good works and hope, that when you get to the judgment seat, right? And he says, all men, whether you're Jew or Greek, will end up being judged by God to some degree. Uh, You've heard me jokingly kind of say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to stand close to Jesus. And when the Father starts judging, I'm going to say, I'm with him. It's too late then (laughs) to proclaim Jesus as Lord when you get to heaven, right? Right? So, if, you, if you're not doing that, then, oh, well, you stand over in this line, you're going to be judged according to your works. If the Bible is true, and I believe it is, as how it describes human nature and our ability to do anything that is perfectly good, we're in trouble if we're in that line. So I think this is the reason then why Paul is talking about this at this point. In other words, he is threatening in the first two chapters of the book of Romans. If the book of Romans is a compilation of Paul's arguments that he's used over the years in his debates with the Jews, then he is resorting to a threatening posture here. And in fact, the, this passage that we keep on reading over and over again could be seen as insulting and repulsive to the Jew. You, you say you say you shouldn't, you hypocrite you, you say you shouldn't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? I don't, that's, that's not how to win friends and influence people. He is getting right in their face. And we know that Paul could get into people's faces when it came to this subject. You that say you should not steal, do you steal? You that abhor idols, have you been involved in the trading of stolen goods and profiting thereby? He's pulling out all the stops, so to speak, and he is is in a threatening posture here. So the question has been asked, this is Hendrickson, if God judges people according to their deeds, how can salvation then be by grace alone? Now, Hendrickson says salvation is indeed by grace alone. I don't think there's anyone that will say that New Testament salvation is not by grace. Now, they might not say by grace alone sola gratia for example once again the roman catholic church and don't report me uh sebastian to the higher authorities in the roman catholic church Uh, the roman catholic church would say no 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 it's a combination yes we're saved by grace but not grace alone we're saved by grace that works and so it's a combination of yeah yes we we believe that god is the prime mover and that you cannot be saved in any other way, but by grace, but the way. And then the evangelicals, some evangelicals will come along and say, yes, well, we kind of agree with that, because the way that you know that you're saved is because you have good works that you've done. They don't save you, but they prove that you're saved. I'm not so much worried about what might be described as quote-unquote good works. I'm worried about the bad works, (laughs) I'm worried about the bad works, and you ought to be worried about the bad works too. Because all of that, some men's uh, sins go on before them, the judgment. Some men's sins follow after them, the judgment. That—that's the problem. It's not that well. Well, I did this, I did that, and you know, I helped with this, and blah blah blah. Well, what about this? The New Testament tells us. If we sin, if we transgress even one law, we become guilty of violating the whole law. Uh, that, that's the way. It demanded perfect execution. The law demanded perfect execution. And the, the, the system of transgressing, uh, bringing a sacrifice, so that your sin could be moved ahead to the Day of Atonement, where hopefully on the Day of Atonement, God would say, okay, I'm going to blot your account out. The blood of bulls and goats just moved the sins forward. It didn't remit them. It remitted them temporarily, but there was no permanent solution. There was no eternal solution. All of those sins then got Put, here's the New Testament uh, take on this. All of those sins then got pushed forward to the man on the cross. So I don't think there's anyone that would say that New Testament salvation is by grace. I think even one of the Pentecostals, they, they've learned not to fall into this trap. They've learned not to deny that salvation is by grace through faith. Because obviously that's the scripture in the Bible. But here is the difference between Paul's gospel and the cults is immediately, it is typically followed up with a yeah, but. Yeah, I agree that salvation is by grace, maybe not alone so much, but what about this? And that gave rise to, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a favorite phrase of his, they moved a little bit too far in the right direction. They moved a little bit too far in the right direction. Really, the only proper response to acknowledging, as Hendrickson does here, salvation is indeed by grace alone, the only proper response is silence. because as Paul says, as we get into the third chapter, so that every mouth might be silenced. Now that silent mouth eventually gives way to a heart full of praise and the tongue cannot be silent any longer. What you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. At the end of the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, there is this outflowing of praise Paul has gone through this deep theological dive twice. We've come up, we've took a deep breath and we dove in chapters one through eight. Then we come up for another breath and we dive again in nine, 10 and 11. At the end of 11, we come up, our lungs are aching and we hear the apostle Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Of him, through him, in him, to him. All things, as Paul said in Colossians, by him all things consist or are are held together. So the silent mouth then ushers forth in doxology or worship. But first, the silence is required because it is an acknowledgement that we have no further argument. I can't argue my way out of this. You've won. I've come to the end of myself, the end of my strength, my the end of my own cogitation, thinking like how can I get around this? And the only thing left to do is to submit. And in that submission and peace, then there results. That is the genesis, that is the ground of true praise and worship to God. And then we can go on, a life of praise then results in the practical application of these truths our justification right grows feet in sanctification justification is something that passively is applied to us we accept it by faith but then after the silence after the praise then sanctification is simply walking out the truths of our justification so Our justification grows feet. Uh, This is what Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. He's talked about the gospel in the first three chapters. And then he implores them, he encourages them to walk out a life that is worthy of what has happened to you. Do you see how we're in no way then decrying the fact that a believer's life is characterized by fruit, by the fruit of good works. We're just saying that that is not the ground of your salvation. That is the result of your salvation. And when we don't have that fruit, when we don't have those results, then we have to seriously consider no fruit because there's no root. I finally went over to that plant over there in the corner uh, which we had hoped you know got out of control for all these years we'd hoped it would come back and i looked at it and i fell on it and pretty pretty soon it came up out of the ground out of the dirt in my hand no i've got a an orchid plant that i bought christy you know, they always get you on Mother's Day because they're so beautiful, right? But one by one, th- those beautiful purple flowers fell off in the kitchen. And so now I'm Googling orchid plants, no blooms, and it says, yes, they go they go into a period of dormancy. And in dormancy, they don't need as much water. You can't really, you're not supposed to overwater them. So I've got it set up on the shelf, right, in the living room, and not in direct sunlight, and the the leaves are still green. I think by evidence, by fact that the leaves are green, that the, the, the plant is still alive. But where are the flowers, right? That's why you buy it. And so then it says, well, you know, it, it may go through a cycle, it may be a year, it might be two years, it might be three years before it blooms again. Over the years when I bought these orchid plants, Christy says, don't buy them, they're too much to take care of, and once the blooms fell off, then we threw the whole thing away. This year I rescued that plant. We're gonna see, every so often when I can't finish a bottle of water, I go over and just put a little bit of water in it, So we should be concerned when we don't see the flower, when we don't see the fruit, because it might. The reason may be is that there's no root there. No fruit, no root. So we're not decrying. We're saying that good works have a a role to play in a believer's life, but they are not an infallible proof as to what, Christ is doing in your life. The only infallible proof that Christ is present, active in your life through the Holy Spirit is the cross of Jesus Christ. There it is. That's the ground of our salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I don't think there's anyone that would, would disagree that salvation is indeed by grace. But look at what Hendrickson says. Now he references 2 Timothy. Turn over there to this verse of Scripture. It's an important verse. Again, we're in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Look at this. Paul's talking about two people in particular who are troubling the faith of some you see it in verse, the end of 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, you see that? Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. This is speaking of not the first resurrection, but the second resurrection. We believe that when Jesus comes again, that the dead in Christ shall rise first. So... Hymenaeus and Pilatus are saying, this has already happened, we've missed it. They are upsetting the faith of some. That's the end of verse 18. Uh, Paul's response to it is found in verse 19, but, say but with me, but, God's firm foundation stands, okay, so these guys are upsetting the faith of some as contrasted to the fact that God's firm foundation is sure, it stands bearing the seal The Lord knows those who are his. So in that phrase, that first phrase, the Lord knows those who are his, we have a combination of justification and election. You cannot understand the depths of justification, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, without in some way begin to wrap your mind around the doctrine of election. The Lord knows those, what does he say? Paul could have said a lot of things here. What is our foundation when our faith may be shaken? Paul says, here's the first thing you want to remember. Your salvation is not dependent on you knowing the Lord. Now, we love that. We enjoy that. That's part of the process. I would have never been able to come to know the Lord if he hadn't first revealed himself to me. There's so much in the in the New Testament that deals with sequencing. Did I somehow come to know the Lord and then I got the Lord's attention and then the Lord knew me? Or did the hounds of heaven, were they on my trail uh, before I even had a clue? Now, in retrospect, I think that the latter case is what happens. Why is God after us? Because uh, the the easy, simple answer, but the profound answer is that in eternity past, God has made a decision about us. If you're going to wait for me to make a decision for Christ, you're going to be waiting a long time. That doesn't happen unless first God has made a decision for you. That is as truthful a statement as Walter Gwynn would have ever preached on. Walter Gwynn um, got in trouble in Pentecostalism because he had this, this strong teaching on election and predestination, and he couldn't explore it because it upset too many people. There may be people here this morning who are saying, well, if God, what if God didn't make a decision for me in eternity past? Yeah, okay. Struggle with that until every mouth is silent. I'm going to design a God. DesignAgod.com. This is the kind of God that I want. It'll be better that way because I know what I want. And I think I know what he wants, so I'll just I'll just decide for him. So Walter Gwynn would say, "Over oh, no, you can't make a decision for Christ until Christ has made a decision for you." Now, other people in the congregation, I don't think they were, I don't think they heard that. But when I heard that, I was like, "What the heck? What did?" And I would look at him and say, do you, thinking to myself, do you really understand the implications of that statement? No man can come unto me except the, the Father who has sent me draws him. And in this Pentecostalism, he would say, no man, he quote Jesus, no man can come unto me except the Spirit draw him. Because, you know, Pentecostalism, we couldn't, you couldn't in oneness Pentecostal. You couldn't talk about three persons or three beings, and so where you saw the word brother, brother Norris taught us that in Bible school. Where you see the word Father in uh, in the New Testament, just you could just almost cross it out and write in Spirit. It was a, it was a common eisegetical technique, bad, very bad for oneness Pentecostals because they. they they, they didn't like the Gospel of John, this idea of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They, they didn't like any, anything that kind of fed into three somethings, three someones, three don't use the word persons. Even today, I uh, have people who may be some, somewhat sympathetic to Paul's Gospel, but they can't swallow the doctrine of the Trinity with three separate persons. So he would say no one can come unto me except the Spirit draws them. You know, Karl Barth says that preachers paw at the text and sniff. He said, sniff the hell out of the text. Karl Barth, he was colorful that way. They paw at the text, sniff the hell out of the text. Uh, Walter Gwynn was pawing at the text. He <laughs> he was about to uncover something, which could and did um, get him in trouble that time. Because people were saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You say Christ has to make a decision for me and I have no input in it? This this is my gospel. This is my God, this is Paul's gospel. You you cannot then, so back to to the statement: the Lord knows those who are his. All that the Father, Jesus said, all that the Father. Shall give to me, shall come to me, and I will in no wise cast out that person who comes to me. A a smoking flax, a smoking reed. What what is that verse of scripture? Oh, I wish my King James Version memory was better. I won't turn away from that. Is if there is the least little bit sign of life, a fire burning, where there's smoke, there's fire. I, I won't turn that person away. So that's what I tell people. People say, ask me, well, what what if I'm not chosen? Well, you know what? You wouldn't be asking what if I'm not chosen. The very fact that you're concerned about this, you understand what I'm saying? The very fact that you're talking about this is a pretty good indication that something's smoking in your life. (laughs) most of the people in the world they they have there's no clue in your light that you're shining in their lives the Christ light that's shining out from you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth you understand that there is this terrible blindness this terrible inability to hear the word of the lord as amos said. It's not that there's a famine. It's not that no one's preaching. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Maybe the reason they're not responding to this is because nobody's preached. Nobody's been sent. And Paul says, well, no, no. And then he proves it by scripture. No, someone was sent, someone preached. What's going on here? The God of this world has blinded their minds to the truth of the gospel that shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's Gospel requires to some degree, even though we don't fathom this completely no one can under he calls it a mystery no one can understand it completely. it does require a submission to something that we we cannot explain fully. It always cracks me up you know people get stopped policemen stop them. not not so much anymore, but you used to be police. Policemen would stop people and give them a ticket, and then when you, it might be you, you say, "Could I have your name and badge number, please?" I'm sure, you're gonna have my name and badge number. It ain't gonna do anything about you getting a ticket from me. Do you think that somehow, oh, let me write that down. I see this on on YouTube. Some guy up in Vermont, he gets a speeding ticket. It went viral. And he just goes off, dropping the F-bombs at the policeman and takes the ticket finally and tears it up in little pieces. And then the policeman is like, well, have a nice day, sir. And then he says, sir, if you don't get out and, and gather the ticket that you've torn up, then I'll have to write you another ticket for littering. And so then the guy is so mad, he gets out, and he gets all the people, and he's still cussing the cop out guy drives off down the road and the cop says on the video, have a nice day, sir. Do we really think that, you know, I'm going to take God's name and number and somewhere I'm going to find his boss and he's going to be in trouble. We we submit ourselves to things that we don't understand. I, I don't, why, why is it that I do not jump out of a fourth story window? Because <laughs> there is some law in play that I don't fully understand. I mean, I can kind of sort of explain it to you. Do I really understand the law of gravity? Well, I know enough about the law of gravity to not jump out of the four-story win- third window, third-story second window, second-story, and at my age, even a first-story window. It could be fatal. So I don't have to understand the doctrine of election and predestination completely. I I have to acknowledge that it exists, these doctrines, teachings, the Lord here's. So what is to comfort me? And, And this has always been the teaching in the church is the doctrine of election is a comfort to the believer. It's not meant to condemn others because you don't know about the other. Person person can go on like an orchid plant for 30 years, have no flower, have no flower, have no flower. How did you keep green all these years? Well, the gardener came along. The arborist came along. He's been watering. While Jesus gives that parable, you know, in the middle of the night, the enemy came along and sowed the field full of, Tears, weeds. There are mysterious things going on in people's lives all the time. So you, you can never, that's why, look, you wonder why I'm a Calvinist. That's one of the reasons why I'm a Calvinist because Calvinists will say, there are no hopeless causes. When it is God who is the prime mover, when God decides to act, So you can see a person and there's no fruit, and then you might say, well, there's no root, and just cross them off. Aren't we glad that all judgment has been committed to the Son? I do not have to enter into a judgment about any person. Every person that I talk to, this is the doctrine of justification and election. Every person that I talk to has the potential, has the potential. It's not something that I'm involved in. I'm, what I, my responsibility is to share the good news. Sow the seed. My responsibility is not to say, you know, I don't think that's good soil. Don't think that's good soil. The sower went out to sow. Let's go out and sow the seed. Helter skelter. Here and there. Some will fall on good ground. Some will fall on not so good ground. Your responsibility is to sow the seed. So look at this. This is, this is one of the most important scripture uh, when it comes to Paul's understanding of the gospel. He says, so here, these guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're trying to destabilize your faith. Here's, here's the, foundation, the foundation of God. It's not your foundation. The foundation of God uh, re- remains strong. Stand sure. What? How, how, how do we know that? The Lord knows. Here's the first thing. The Lord knows those who are his. So, and then, and, but that is like justification growing feet. What is the next one? Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. A person who has been called by God in eternity past and and relishes Paul's gospel, my gospel, relishes the the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. All of a sudden in their life, their justification grows feet. And we used to sing that song, there's a new man walking in these shoes. There's a new man walking in these shoes. He don't do the things that he used to do. There is a new man walking in these shoes. Some days are better than others. Some days the path is straighter than others. But as G.K. Chesterton said, even the drunk who may walk from one side of the path to the other and stagger his way from the ditch on the left to the ditch on the right, ditch on the left, ditch on the right. Antinomianism over here, legalism over here. Drunk, wandering back and forward on the road, you say, I wonder if, the, I wonder if the, the drunk will ever get home. Chesterton says, as long as he stays on the path. <laughs> it's a highway to heaven. So it may take you longer, right? How many know the shortest distance from point A to point B is a straight line? Nobody was able to walk a straight line but Jesus. The rest of us, we wander back and forth. Sometimes in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we end up in the ditch. Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we're at a halfway station. We need to rest a while. Somebody needs like the Good Samaritan to pay for our recovery. Here, here I'll cover his bills for two days, and then if you need more, when I come back on the third day, I'll pay the bill. We need the community. But the fact of the matter is, this is God's doing. And it is marvelous in our sight. If we stay on the path, as imperfect as our walking may be, the path will lead us home. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this good news. And we resist it. Our default fallen nature says anything that sounds that good, it's got to be too good to be true. It can't be true. And so we fight, we resist. And yet, ultimately, Father, we know that because you love us, our arguments will fall by the wayside and we will stand before you silent, acknowledging in our silence the truth of the good news of the gospel. And it causes us to delve into the wonders and the mystery, and it causes us to have a deeper desire every day to live a life that is worthy of your name to turn away from iniquity. As Paul told the Jews, it's because of you, it's because of your conduct that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Help us, Father, to have a heightened desire and discipline uh, to bring glory to your name. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.